Good evening, Flagstaff, and welcome to another edition of The Double Double on KLJX LP Flagstaff. I am your host, Noah Butler, here alongside my co-host, Evan McNeilia, and our guest today, Colby. So today we're going to get into some baseball because this last weekend of baseball, Wild Card Weekend, the first set of Wild Card Series, and really we saw a lot of really good baseball. Um, the Mariners were able to make it to the playoffs. I know that's something we talked about last week. Not only did they do that, but they came back from down 8-1 to one in their two-game sweep of the Blue Jays. How are we feeling about that, guys? You know, that was a impressive comeback on, um, what was that, Saturday in Game 2? Yeah. Huge um, come-from-behind victory for the Mariners, you know, just... Um, They've kind of been the wonder team this season, you know. They've uh, broken their postseason drought similar to the Browns a couple of years ago in the NFL. They've gone on to um, make the playoffs, like you said, and you guys talked about last week. And now here they are on their way to the divisional round, something that we honestly couldn't have foreseen maybe even going into last week's series. And, you know, especially on Saturday, down by that many runs, it just didn't look like it was going to go in their favor. So just kind of a miracle for them to uh, turn that one around and come back. Yeah, Tommy, do you have any thoughts, Colby? Yeah, I mean, they just took full advantage of the Blue Jays' miscues. You pay Gosman all that money after losing Semyon and Ray, and you take them out at the first sign of trouble, just – Poor decision making by the Blue Jays and the Mariners with a just a great rally, a great comeback, one of the best. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I was watching that eighth inning actually as that game was happening. That's right when I turned it on, and I saw the blooper that went right in between the three center fielders and Bichette and Springer collided. That was a that was a scary play for both of them. I mean, what is that going to turn into for their injuries or? What, what could happen from that? Yeah, definitely tough. But, you know, now that they're out of the postseason, that's something that they can focus on a little bit long term. But that little blooper by J.P. Crawford that ended up tying the game was huge. And, you know, it's always unfortunate when a game-breaking play like that happens after a player injury like that. You know, a collision yeah. on the outfield, two very good players trying to make a play on the baseball and just – collision like that and it ends up uh you end up giving up a lead in a winner go home playoff game I think that's a really tough look for the Blue Jays and at the same time you know their offense did everything it could to stay to stay alive in that game and um after they tied the game you know it just all the momentum was going in the other direction there wasn't much that um the Blue Jays could do to stop the Mariners at that point with momentum going in their direction and then in the ninth inning um Cal Raleigh, the catcher who had a great weekend at the plate, went three for four on Saturday's game, had three runs and an RBI, just able to get that game-winning run in the ninth inning is huge for the Mariners. And, you know, we'll get into it a little bit more and a little bit here when we talk about their upcoming series with a division opponent, which is going to be very exciting to see. But those are the same type of plays that we're going to need to see out of them and a lot of their star players if they're going to want to continue this postseason miracle run that we've kind of seen. Yeah, totally. I mean, that bloop in the center field, uh, Vachette, he needs to he needs to back off. Springer needs to get that one. He has the angle, he has the momentum, and he's a great fielder. And and you saw how it resulted with the two of them colliding. They're both down, and the runners come around the score, and the Mariners, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the last um, underdog team that was led by a rookie was 
the 2019 Washington Nationals, and maybe we see a similar run like uh, like that. Yeah, I certainly could see that, and them having to go through juggernaut teams is also kind of reminiscent of the Braves last year. Didn't they have to go through some juggernauts? Definitely. They um, had a tough run <laughs> through the postseason last year, having to um, ending up in that series with the Astros. But, you know, now looking at Seattle Mariners, that's another team that they have to go through on their own side of the bracket, which is uh, definitely a tough look. And like you said, though, um, teams that end up winning championships, teams that have championship aspirations, they have to make it through those tough teams if they're going to make it to the promised land. And again, um, it's been a rough look here and uh, for the Mariners against the Astros. But again, we've seen a lot of miracles happen. So we could see a bit of a different result coming up. I kind of hope we do. I have a lot of disdain for the Astros over the years, but I, I think Seattle has some has something going. Yeah, but tough for the Blue Jays, though. You know, whenever you bring in a relief pitcher, and I'm all too familiar with this as a uh, fan of the and supporter of the San Diego Padres, who we'll get into a little bit, but bullpen struggles. You know, they bring in Anthony Bass. He ends up not recording a single out while giving up three hits and three earned runs, just kind of a total collapse, and that's kind of when things started swinging that opposite direction for um the Mariners so just tough when you can't rely on your bullpen and that's really what lost uh, the Blue Jays the series because if they were able to hold it together in those final innings um, they would have had a good shot on Sunday to close it out especially um, I felt like Vlad Guerrero could have definitely gotten more involved with that offense in the series and he could have produced a little bit more to help the team I know he got a bit more involved on the Saturday game than he did on Fridays but that being said you know you know, a big player doesn't go too many games without um, really making a statement, and I think he could have done that for that Blue Jays team in a winner-go-home tie, um, tied game on both sides on a Sunday, but they ended up not getting that opportunity because of the crumble at the latter half of that game. Yeah, I mean, they once Bass came in and struggled, they just hit the full-blown panic button, bringing in Romano, and then I'm not sure when they brought Simba in, but, I mean, that whole game was clutching in. I have seen Adam Simber pitching in so many home run highlights. It never goes. It looks like it is never good when he comes in. Same with uh, another sidearm pitcher, Tyler Rogers on the Giants. Yeah. Well, if we're going into pitching, then we're going to want to go into the other wild card series in the AL between the Rays and the Guardians. That was certainly a pitching clinic. Um, the Rays actually only put up a single run in 24 innings of baseball. Remember, the second game went to 15 innings and ended with that Oscar Gonzalez walk-off. But pitching is certainly the theme of that series. What do you guys have to say about that? Yeah, I'm, I was uh, covering NAU football by the time that last game ended uh, in the 15th inning. And uh, just combining, though, for uh, eight pitchers for the Guardians going that deep, 15 innings, they only give up six hits in that time, only allow five walks with 20 strikeouts, end up throwing a combined 247 pitches in the appearance, though that's going to be a lot of stress on the bullpen coming into the next series. But that being said, that's a joint effort of getting the job done. When your offense isn't producing, but your bullpen and that many pitchers are able to keep a consistent shutout all the way through 15 innings, I think that's a statement and a testament to a bullpen that can make it far in a postseason, especially if the offense can start finding their bats a little bit more. That being said, though, um, it was just a tough loss for the Rays. You can't appear in the postseason and not put up um, 
more than one run in two games and like you said 24 innings of action they had an opportunity and you know obviously they had six innings of extra action to get one run to end the game against um the guardians but they weren't able to get it done and so you know playoff baseball will expose some teams and i think the rays um definitely got exposed but at the same time if um going into the next round i think the guardians need to be a little bit wary of their offensive production they need to I think their offense knows that it needs to step it up going forward. You can't have too many 15-inning games in the playoffs and uh, expect to have that longevity to walk home with the hardware. Yeah, I mean, Cleveland really, they can, I mean, great. I mean, they, they must be feeling amazing after winning that. But you look at it, it is just three swings of the bat. The single, and then Jose Ramirez hitting the two-run homer and uh, Gonzalez's walk-off home run, they do those three swings and they just look at every single pitch. I mean, it's the same result, so they really need to start rallying and offense needs to pick it up by a lot. That's going to be, I feel like that's going to be very difficult coming into the next series against New York because not only does New York have a, a solid bullpen, but they have offensive firepower a lot more so than the Rays. If the Yankees can get going and get runs on the board, then I really think that that series is going to be a slugfest, but not for the Guardians. Yeah, they're going to need to get their bats alive. Jose Ramirez had a great game, one, two for four, with two RBIs and a home run, you know, doing his uh, normal due diligence work for that lineup, but then uh, kind of disappears in the mixing game, too, and um, just doesn't, I mean, like you said, they only needed one run to pull out of that one, with that one ending one nothing in the 15th inning. So just lack of offensive production for a while before... Um, I think it was uh, Ramirez, or sorry, no, Gonzalez in that game who ended up coming out at the end with the big play. But still, um, like you said, coming up on the Yankees' uh, offensive um, juggernaut, say you will, with obvious uh, MVP, I think, front runner in the AL. We'll see how it comes down in the final race. But Aaron Judge in that lineup, they're going to need some of that offensive production to uh, match what the Yankees have on the other side, even as good as Shane Bieber was in game one, you know, um, 7.2 innings pitched, only allowed three hits and only one earned run, like masterclass pitching performance, you can't expect anything, or I mean, maybe a shutout on a great day, but can't really expect much more out of a starting pitcher, and um, he really gave them their best opportunity to win in game one, they capitalized getting two runs in that game, and um, like you said, complete the 2-0 sweep in the wild card round, it's a uh, Impressive outing for Cleveland. We know what they have in their pitching and bullpen, but how will that match up against some uh, a team that has more offensive weapons than the Tampa Bay Rays? Yeah, totally. I mean, I you can take McKenzie or Bieber, have them pitch seven innings, and have uh, Karen Sheck and uh, you can have Karen Sheck and Classe uh, come in. What do you what do you do for the I mean that's one game where your primary like your premier focus is shutting down the offense. What are you gonna do to get those next three wins? Yeah, it's um tough there trying to get I mean, you only need three wins in this next round, but trying to figure it out against these tougher teams, getting those three wins, especially when they've had time preparation, kind of a look at both teams that they might get a look at and uh some studies, so 
we'll see which way this goes. You know, having to come off a long game, you have a little bit more wear and tear on the bullpen and your starting pitcher's arms. So we'll see, I guess, coming into that next round, how much that's going to, I guess, uh, affect um, these teams coming out of the wild card. Yeah. All right. Let's let's switch leagues here. We've been talking a lot about the AL. Let's switch it to the NL. There were two pretty big upsets, I'd say, in the in the wild card series. First, the Phillies against the Cardinals and Albert Pujols and Yadi Molina. They're done. So, what do we? How do we feel about that Philly series? A um, little bit surprising, like you said. I think I think the Cardinals. Um, Similar to the Mariners this season, had a little bit of wonder factor to them, you know, just with Albert Pools in his final year with Wainwright and um, Yadier Molina in that mix, like you said. It's just that's a very special group of players. There's very few trios in MLB history that will go down quite like those three. They've been integral to the game, they've been faces of this league now for, I'd say, the entire time I've had enough of a brain to pay attention to the MLB. They've gripped um, the attention of many fans. You know, Yadier Molina y- earlier in his career just being a, a show-stopping catcher. No runners could steal on him. It was almost like a no-fly zone situation, uh, like in a defensive back shutting down a side of the field, but with um, Yadier Molina shutting down the base path with um, not allowing runners to advance or anything. And then... Um, Albert Pujols, obviously one of the great power hitters of all time, reached 703 this season, and that truly felt special. But again, it's just gonna be um, it's gonna be different here um, without these guys in the league. And I think seeing them with a first round um, exit here is gonna be uh, it's it's tough and definitely surprising on the Phillies' behalf. You know, their stars came out; they made the plays that they needed to make to knock out a team that's seen to have storylines, energy, and um, a little bit of everything going for it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the, the Phillies, you actually get Bryce Harper playoff baseball for once, and Bryce Harper delivered during this postseason in the past. I know he's not been the best player when it comes to October, but the, he did show up in this, in this series with that, with that home run that really sparked kind of the Phillies' comeback in game two. Um, I mean, there's not really a whole lot more I can say. I didn't watch the series a whole lot, but I know that their star players were very electric and key in this comeback. Yeah, I mean, the Cards had a 2 nothing lead in going into that uh, last game before um, just kind of uh, fell apart near the end for um, the Cardinals. And so... Um, just a tough outing, and then obviously don't put up any runs in that second game in Albert Pujols' last career game. Aaron Nola puts up a good performance, 6.2 innings, only allows four hits, one walk, and has six strikeouts. And um, Alvarado, Dominguez, and Eflin were able to come out of the bullpen for them to shut out the uh, game, only allowing a couple more hits. But that being said, it was just a, um, yeah, no, just a tough loss for the Cardinals and a bit of baseball history going uh, missing here. Really, yeah. I mean, we're going to miss a lot of baseball history when they're gone, too. I mean, that that trio, like we've been saying, is very very electric and very historic. Main, historic yeah, really mainstay in the MLB here. I mean, I, I the Phillies, they have a juggernaut opponent for their own of the Braves. I mean, we might be able to see two Cinderella's in this in this playoffs, but it's yet to be seen. 
honestly, and uh, we'll get into our full breakdowns and whys and in a bit, but I think that the Phillies Brave series might be the most done decided uh, series of the divisional series. I don't think I think the Braves are too much of a powerhouse, but we'll get into that in a bit. And then on the other side of that same bracket, Mets and Padres. You know the Mets have, as we talked about last week, the Mets had the breakdown and ended up losing the division to the Braves, and now they have this letdown in the wild card to a. I mean, three games, they, it did take three games, but the Padres' offense was just too much to handle, and, I mean, they have their star players, and their star players contributed, so. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Mets put up a good fight, but the Padres were a little bit too much to handle. Um, the Padres' offensive production finally came to life. Um, it was something we've seen a little bit streaky since the Juan Soto trade. It hasn't exactly gone to plan with just overall offensive consistency they managed to make the wild card but just um finally got it going in this series it felt like against a really good opponent in the Mets they um win that game one seven to one bell homers and then of course as we all saw this weekend Trent Grisham is absolutely balling in the playoffs something I don't think I've ever think would come out of my mouth before this weekend, you know, just Trent Grisham not being an overall top performer during the regular season, now absolutely slaughtering baseballs in the postseason, making big plays at big times for the Padres. It's hard not to uh, get a little bit sentimental and uh, excited for some postseason production out of him, but that being said, the Padres' offense came to life, and um, a lot of the Mets' pitchers struggled. They couldn't uh, shut down the Padres' offense, and then we'll... Um, I'll, I'll let someone else start talking about Game 3 first as we get into that, but um, that's a, Game 3 was its whole own topic. Yeah, game, game 3, I mean, the Mets only had one hit, and it was just a downfall of a team. It was just the end of a downfall from a team that just collapsed at the end of the regular season. I mean, Game 1, like we, I think we were all surprised. Scherzer looked unhittable at some point in the season, and then they just hit a bunch of nukes off of them but yeah game three was just sad and depressing and I mean it just they just sucked the life out of the entire um ballpark and you see and it was just sad they were down four nothing it looked like they were on their last leg and they try and get everybody hyped up with the Edwin Diaz and everybody's like why I don't care score some runs I don't care about Edwin Diaz and I think a lot of Mets fans think that Timmy Trumpet has cursed this team. I'll um, I'll say I've been a I've been a big fan of the Timmy Trumpet this season. It's been a fun uh, feature of baseball. It's been one of the more exciting storylines. That being said, as a Padres fan, hearing those trumpets one last time sending us into the next, or I won't say us, sending the Padres into the next round with a uh, win. Um, was kind of cool. I mean, much respect to Edwin Diaz. He had a great season. And um, talk about in game two, he came in and kind of had a uh, long relief effort, pitched 1.2 innings, um, came in in the seventh inning as um, the Mets had a lead and were trying to hold off the Padres and uh, did a good job in relief, but obviously um, did couldn't really quite capture that in the final game um, as they down him four to nothing. But, you know, I can't say with game two I wasn't surprised that much. Blake Snell's Blake Snell. He's going to give up some runs. He's going to either have a beautiful game where he's dotting. uh, He's just really feeling the zone, finding his spots, and he's going to strike out eight, nine batters and 
not allow many hits, not give up many runs, or he's just going to allow his pitches to get slapped silly around the yard. It's really one way or the other, and, you know, he also has sometimes inconsistency finding the zone, so it's really hit or miss, hot and cold days a lot with Snell, so losing that second game, I guess, was rough, but then talk about Joe Musgrove coming into that final game. Seven innings pitched, only allowing one hit. Got to shout him out as a Grossmont High School alum. Shout out Foothillers. Um, but just great performance from the hometown kid in the playoffs, um, sending the Padres to the second round. Um, and now um, I read online, actually, that this because of uh, the 2020 pandemic and because of the postseason that year being shut down from fans, no fans allowed in attendance, this is going to be the first playoff baseball at Petco Park with fans in 16 years. This past season, the Padres got very close, if not set their attendance record for the season, so fans are more excited than ever to go out and see this team. Getting some playoff baseball, let alone Dodgers-Padres, the NL West rivalry in the next round, is going to be nothing short of exciting going forward. It's going to be, I think, the most exciting playoff series of the next round, unless the Mariners decide to make things interesting with the Houston Astros, which very well could happen. But just the Padres-Dodgers rivalry in San Diego with fans as excited about baseball there as ever for the first time in 16 years. I I think um, not quite the testament to the Mariners' 21-year broken record, but a similar um, level of excitement around a streak being bro- broken for a fan base, I think. I think so, too. I think the Padres are very deserving of some fan interaction in their playoff. I mean... The Mariners, too, like you said, 21 years. A lot of people weren't even born the last time or the, the Mariners made the playoffs, so they're going to have a whole lot. They're going to have a whole big fan base down there in San Diego, hopefully coming out to see some great rivalry baseball. I think that's what's been really exciting about this year's playoffs is it's not just, I mean, with the added team, not only are there more teams in the mix, so there's more storylines, more games, but also just like, different teams and always new storylines new players making their names known in postseason action and I think that's been really exciting for the MLB and the league the only thing that they're missing now is the Angels and the two best players in the league arguably Mike Trout and Shohei Otani appearing in the postseason but that's a uh, topic for another time and I think uh, we'll be moving on from this topic now I think so I think we're going to take a little break here Um, But we will get back in the action with some divisional series matchups and predictions. And we'll be back right after this. You're listening to The Double Double on KLJX LP Flagstaff. And welcome back to The Double Double here. I'm your host, Noah Butler. We have a new guest. Here's Joe Garner. Hey, guys. How's it going? Um, We're going to be getting into our divisional series predictions now. We we just spent the last section talking a lot about the wildcard series, but now we are on to the next round. So I guess I'll start it off here. Um, We ended with the NL last time, so let's go back to the AL. Um, The Astros versus Mariners series, we were talking a lot about how the Mariners do have a lot of spark in them and a lot of potential, I think, potential for a Cinderella story here, but they are going up against the Houston Astros who have made the World Series a lot in the last couple years and behind just pitching and... Verlander's having a comeback season, so we'll we'll have to see what the Astros are able to do, especially with, yeah. 
No, it's going to be a tough series here for the Seattle Mariners, for sure. They have a tall mountain ahead with the Astros. The Astros this season, they ranked uh, eighth in the MLB in runs scored while ranking second in ERA. They ranked top 13 in hits, top 12 in average, and they only they were number two in opponent batting average allowed. Uh, they ranked top four in home runs. They were number seven in OPS. So And number two in strikeouts while also striking out the top five most batters in the league. So this is a very highly ranked Astros team. They've performed up to par. They've performed up to their standard this year. So I think we're it's really going to come down to how magical really is this Mariners run. How much uh, pixie dust does this Mariners team hold? I think... Um, I think energy, positive vibes, and uh, just team energy can go a long way, especially in baseball postseason, especially when an entire lineup is feeling it and ready to go for one another. But that being said, Houston in the last 48 meetings, going back to 2020 with the um, Mariners, leads 30-18. to This year, they led the series 12-7 to and took the last six of took the last six of seven matchups. So Houston's really dominated the series for... The recent future, they dominated it this season, and especially at the end of the season, as of recent, they've won the last six of seven games against the Mariners, so it doesn't look that positive for the Mariners, but, you know, I if the Mariners are going to win it, it's going to come down to a Game 5 miracle. The other way, the Astros might finish this with a sweep. Like, it's just... One of those series, it's either going to be very hard fought because this Mariners team is as gritty as they've... Um, the storybook season has made them seem or the Astros are just that team and they're a powerhouse and they're going to be competing to make it to the world series and the championship series again. Yeah. This, this Astros team is certainly a juggernaut. Like we've talked about. I mean, there's only so much you can say about the Mariners Cinderella run because it's just been talked about so much recently. I mean, they're going to have to get on the backs of Cal Raley and their pitching if they really want to have that spark and be able to get over this massive hill, like you were saying. It's, it's going to take something monumental, but if they get it done, I certainly hope they do. I think the Mariners are set for the foreseeable future. Yeah, um, I mean, if you're a Mariners fan, making the playoffs this year has to feel like you're already ahead of schedule with things, with them. Um, the way you were expecting your lineup in young development to play out, but now here you are, you're in the playoffs, you've won a series, and now you have a division opponent in front of you. If you go take advantage of that fact that you know this opponent, you've seen them a lot this year and go out and win those games, then, you know, that's on the Mariners' prerogative, but this series starts on Tuesday, as the rest of the series do, and the AL games are going Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday this weekend. And Houston has announced that they will be pitching their stud, who, having a bit of a career resurgence later in his career, Justin Verlander this season posting a 1.75 ERA, getting the start on the mound in the opening game of the series for the Houston Astros. Um, that's going to be, again, a tall task for the Mariners. Do you have any thoughts, Joe? Yeah, I, I have to agree about Justin Verlander coming off of his Tommy John surgery. Uh, He's pitching great. His ERA is pretty high at 1.75. They also have to rely on their their rookie, Julio Rodriguez, who's also playing pretty well. Nah, I'd like to find that um, Tommy John surgeon. Maybe get me into a couple years of minor league ball. If I could be 40 years old and pitching like Verlander is now, I'd, I'd certainly love to be playing baseball. Doesn't Disney have a movie called The Rookie about that? 
the other series, like we were talking about earlier, also involves a lot of pitching, and it's going to come down to pitching, I think. Um, the Cleveland Guardians against the New York Yankees. Um, as we talked about earlier, the Guardians have a stacked rotation, and they were able to shut out the Rays for 15 innings. But coming into this, coming into the Bronx, one of the loudest stadiums and the most rowdy fans, I, there, there's the incident between the Guardians and the Yankees earlier this season. That series is going to be a, a dogfight, I think. Um, if the Guardians are not able to pitch around the Yankees' offense, because we know their offense wasn't that spectacular in this last series, if their offense isn't able to put up as many runs as the Yankees' offense is hoping to, especially with Aaron Judge not having to hit 50 million home runs a game, I think the Yankees are going to come out on top of this one. It, it might be four games, but I, it's looking like a sweep, at least from my point of view. Definitely could. Three stats for you. Yankees, number two in runs scored, number one in home runs, and number one in walks. They get runners on base, and they hit home runs. That's something that the Cleveland Guardians could not do in their last series against the Tampa Bay Rays. Tampa Bay Rays. We're now talking the New York Yankees, who have a lot of talent on that pitching staff. Between, I mean, Garrett Cole... I mean, Garrett Cole's been on all season, and that's what I mean why he's getting the opening start um, for the Yankees. But Nestor Cortez and Luis Servino as well; those aren't easy pitchers to get runs against. They're studs, and yes, those are the first three pitchers the Yankees are throwing out at the Guardians. But that is going to be a uh, you know tough for um, the Guardians. You know, they didn't put up runs last series, and now they're going up against a tougher team that puts up more runs and has better pitching. Like, it just lose-lose-lose situation. It doesn't, which, you know, I think that's the way it could go. Lose-lose-lose, series sweep, Yankees on to the next round, Astros-Yankees rematch, and I don't know. This year, um, just to kind of tease that preview, if that's what ended up happening, what ends up happening, I don't know if it goes the same way as it did last year with the Yankees' improvement this year and the level that Judge has ascended to. Well, the Yankees didn't even make it past the wild card last year because Garrett Cole got rocked by the Red Sox. That's um, right. But this will be, potentially, it could potentially be a rematch of the 2017 championship series, which I hope a lot of people know was a very tightly contested series. It went to seven games, and that 2017 Yankees team was not supposed to get that far if we remember um i think they played the a's in that wild card game and managed to get through them and then the defending al champion indians in seven games as well highlighted by greg bird in game seven uh which then took them to that juggernaut astros team which ended up winning the world series <clears throat> uh trash cans but besides that i think yeah this series is definitely going to be different because both teams have really good pitching. I mean, I don't want to look too far ahead. Like you said, yeah. Should these uh, two games, should these two series in the AL go as they're planned? Go as we predicted. Go as predicted, not as planned. Nothing's planned yet. No, but I mean, as predicted. Yeah, no, I guess yeah. that's a better way yeah, to put it. Predicted. That's, that's yeah. what I was trying to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this. It it could be it could be very we could be in for some very fun AL baseball. Uh, you have any thoughts about that series, Joe? Uh, yeah, it was just it's gonna be a tough game for the Guardians. They're 
the youngest team in the league. They average their average age of batters is twenty five point nine years old, and it's just gonna be a hard game for their pitching. Aaron Judge, after hitting sixty two home runs this season, and Garrett Cole, who has broken the single season franchise strikeout record, it's gonna be a tough game for the game for the Guardians, regardless of their pitching and how they play. It's just gonna be a hard game. Totally agree. Let's flip. Let's flip leagues here. We did talk about how the Braves, you were talking about how the Braves and Phillies series is pretty much all but over already, and we haven't even started the game. What do you have to, what do you have to back that up with, Evan? You know, the Braves are just a juggernaut. They have been for the last few years. They lose some players, switch up their lineup a little bit, but not much really changes. They're still the same successful team. Um, recently, in their last 48 meetings, Atlanta leads 26-22, to 22, so a little bit closer than some of these other games. Atlanta won the season series this year 11-8, to 8, and, but, however, just like... Um, kind of lopsided near the end like I in that Houston Astros series um they won the five of the last seven games against this team consistency near the end of the season consistency down the stretch when you know you might be feeling a little bit tired you have the fatigue of the season on you just being able to pull out those wins against a again a tough team that's a playoff team obviously now that they're matching up against each other is going to be huge I think that um the Braves' experience in the playoffs, as opposed to the Phillies, is going to pay off here. Just because this is a newer Phillies team to the success. They're not quite attuned to the level that the Braves are. You know, obviously coming off a world championship. Like, it's going to take a lot to beat them. I don't know if this one's going to be a sweep necessarily. I think the Phillies could steal a game or two in this one. Maybe force five, but... I just, I really don't see a situation unless Bryce Harper decides that playoff, playoff Bryce Harper is a very real thing. I don't see the Phillies really doing much against the Braves. No, I don't, I don't necessarily see that either, especially since, I mean, the Braves are going to be good for a long time too. Um, yeah, I think, I think the Braves just have too much for the Phillies to handle. And like you were saying, this Phillies team is very unexperienced in the ways of actually winning. Um, their last playoff series win was back in 2010 and they're I mean Phillies yeah they just haven't been up there in terms of with these other juggernaut teams like the Braves who are obviously the defending champs and then on the other side the the Dodgers who are the Dodgers and yeah yeah and Matt or Matt Olson has really um been that replacement for Freddie Freeman that they needed um him to be this season so getting big numbers from him while Acuna and Swanson are still doing their thing is um not only beneficial to the team the lineup but I think it's the reason why that they're gonna breeze past this round I mean yeah the Phillies have Bryce Harper Bryce Harper's amazing Bryce Harper's on Mike Trout level of amazing but that being said just does not the depth Philly doesn't have the depth that the Atlanta does currently, and I think it's really going to show in this next round coming off a round where, um, yeah, they just played two games. Yeah. The Braves didn't. Simple as that. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Joe? I think you guys said it all. Uh, I just think the Phillies are going to struggle against the defending champs with the Braves. Uh, yeah, you guys summed it up pretty well. All right. So let's go to that other series. Uh, the other juggernaut, the Dodgers, with their franchise record and wins. Um, against the Padres team that just upset the Mets. I mean, this is an NL West rivalry, and a 
pretty much anticipated one this entire season. Um, pretty tightly contested. I mean, the Dodgers are still the Dodgers, and they got Freddie Freeman to add on to that team. But yeah, I think it's going to be. I think that's going to be probably the closest series that we have in the division. And honestly, I think it would take a bit of a. It, it'd be a bit of a miracle if the Padres pull it off. It's um. The Dodgers have had their number recently, recent years, recent months. Like it just, it, not a lot has gone the Padres' way. As much as the Padres add on, um, no Fernando Tatis, but with Juan Soto, Josh Bell, um, the pitching talent that we have, it doesn't matter. The Dodgers have still found a way to have success against the Padres, so it's not gonna. I don't think it's gonna matter. Like the Padres are gonna put up a fight, no doubt. But that being said, the. Dodgers are just elite this year. Like you said, they put up their record. 111 wins. 111 wins and 51 losses in baseball. That, I mean, just ridiculous numbers, a ridiculous winning percentage. I mean, that's the equivalent of an NFL team going 11-5 and five while playing 10 times more games. It's, it's absurd. But that being said... um. You know, Padres pitching Clevenger in this first game, and he's even really struggled against the Dodgers. So it's not even like we're putting our best for- foot forward against them. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to – I think they're setting it up that way. Just, I mean, Musgrove obviously pitched the last game, but also I think they want Musgrove pitching at home during the season – or during the series. I think that's going to bring a little bit of energy. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they go down 0-2. Uh, if he pitches game three and if they split the series in um, Los Angeles 1-1, then him coming out for game four then, hypothetically. But, you know, the Padres have pitchers. They have some guys that can get it done. They have some guys that are prone to get smacked around the yard. It's going to depend on what version of those pitchers that we see during the series. And thing, there's no tell one way or another how it's going to go. This Dodgers lineup is either going to have their way with the, the Padres like they do every other team in the ma- major leagues, or the Padres are finally going to get it because they've gotten used to this team. They've seen them enough times, and, you know, they're going to move on and be able to take that uh, win and sw- turn the tables, really, at the end of the season here. But, like I said, I think it would be a real miracle for that to happen. I I think so, too. I mean, like you said, they're going to put up a lot of fight but there's only so much you can do against the Dodgers same thing goes with the Astros too I mean the Dodgers elevated their team they got Freddie Freeman this offseason which is who's an exceptional first baseman and he's putting up MVP like numbers um yeah the Dodgers just keep finding ways to get really really good players and they know how to use them too so I think the only weakness that the Dodgers might have is I'd say pitching, honestly, from, I mean. I mean, mean, but it's not, it's not even that big of a weakness. No, it's not that big of a weakness, but it is the weakness that they have, if there's any in that team. I mean, the Dodgers ranked number one this season in ERA and uh, top five in strikeouts. And I know that's not everything. And they were number one in whip as well. But and I, that doesn't always equate to wins, losses, what the bullpen accounts for, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But this is a team that they have. They're the number one pitching team and the number one batting team in the MLB. And they won 111 games. What's stopping them? Nothing at this yeah. point. And so I think that, like I said, 
miracle, miracle. It's gonna be, it's gonna have to be like a resounding team effort, one of the most impressive performances we've ever seen from a baseball team to overcome this Dodgers team this year. And I think that goes throughout the playoffs. I think that even goes for when if they run into the Braves. I think that goes whoever they run into if they make it to the championship. I don't think that changes. I think no matter who beats this Dodgers team, it's going to take a resurgent, resounding, impressive, um, career-like, uh, team-defining-like performance to get rid of this team this year. I totally agree with you. Well, that, that has been a lot of baseball talk that we've had here, hasn't it? Um, let's, yeah, let's, yeah, let's take a little break here. Uh, we will be back in a few minutes. We'll be back on the other side with the double-double on KLJX LP Flagstaff. Welcome back to the double-double on KLJX LP Flagstaff. I'm Evan McNillia alongside Noah Butler, and we got Joe here as our guest today. And... We uh, just wrapped up uh, about 45 minutes of MLB talk. A lot of good wild card action going on. If you missed that segment, want to hear it, we'll have this episode up on Spotify sometime in the next week if you want to tune in. But that being said, time to get into uh, some fun action, boys. Um, my favorite segment to talk about, the NFL. So, starting off um, our segment, the first game we'll look at from this past weekend it was um, the first game that took place on Sunday, early at 6.30 a.m. here in Flagstaff. If you woke up that early, got ready, um, <laughs> we're up to see that game. You got uh, the Packers' first ever game in London taking on the Giants. And boy, did the Giants impress. Get an upset win, 27-22 over the Packers. Uh, Packers came out to an early league, but the Giants were able to hang with them. The Giants' defense was able to stay off the field most of the second half as the offense put together long, sustained scoring drives. And um, at the last second, the defense comes up with two big swats, including on a fourth and uh, near the goal line. I'm not sure if it was a fourth and goal situation quite, but it uh, comes up with a big stop against the Packers. But um, just impressive performance to win here. And uh, Noah, we'll start with you. What are your uh, initial thoughts on this uh, Giants-Packers game? Well, first off, I, I didn't. I caught the end of this game, and I saw what the Giants were able to do. Obviously, I did not wake up at 6:30 on a Sunday morning. But from what I did see, yeah, the the Giants played like a coherent football team, something that we really haven't seen them do in the last couple seasons. And I mean, Saquon's having a resurgent season, coming back from those those hard hitting injuries. I mean. He was able to put up a 100-yard game with a touchdown. When you can do that, your football team is really in a good spot to win. When the running back's able to just keep the clock moving, keep the offense moving, I mean, Daniel yeah. Jones is nothing to scoff at, but Saquon was really the back of this team. Yeah, no, had a good day receiving and rushing. Got a little bit involved. Didn't quite reach 100 yards rushing, but, you know, reached that 100-yard mark in the receiving game just because of how versatile of a back he is. But, Joe, what were your initial thoughts on that early game? First of all, the Giants are 4-1. and one. Who would have saw that? Who would have saw that this season? Not me. Not me. Like, Brian Dabble, obviously a great head coach hire. Make a, the Giants are looking like a football team. Um Saquon looks amazing coming back from injury, and they don't even have like their top three wide receivers. Kenny Galladay, I didn't see him play much. Uh, Tardarius Tony, uh, Sterling Shepard just tore his ACL last week. Like yeah. they don't have their top three wide receivers. I couldn't even name their the three receivers that played. And the Giants are looking great. 
they came away with those two swats at the end of the game to end it uh, against the Packers. A good Packers coach team, and I, I was surprised. Yeah, um, I think the Packers are just really hurting right now without um, veteran targets. You know, Romeo Dobbs has been doing his uh, best to get involved with the offense as possible, but not everything's clicking there. He's not catching every ball yet, but hey, how about a fifth-round pick wide receiver making himself felt in an offense early on, though, really um, stepping up, and I think he has a great future with the Green Bay, but... That being said, um, the Packers just struggling um, down the stretch on offense. I think um, in that second half, actually, the um, Packers only had 10 minutes of possession time. 10. The Giants gr- grinded 20 minutes of clock against the Packers' defense. Daniel Jones did his thing getting outside the pocket, picking up scramble yardage, getting first downs, keeping the clock moving but they really took Aaron Rodgers out of that game and not only was the Giants offense on the field for a majority of that half but here are their um drive finishes from that half you have a field goal on the first drive and then a touchdown and a touchdown on their next two possessions which I mean pretty much iced the game and then um after that was the situation where they swat the ball from Aaron and then they um they get a safety, which, you know, it looks bad on a stat sheet, but let's talk about that a little bit. What the Giants did there was a very smart football play. They were backed up and had to punt out of their own end zone. They're going against quarterback Aaron Rodgers. He has a cannon arm. We know he can throw it from the 50-yard line into the end zone if he wanted to. So what do they do? They have about, I think it was 15, 13 seconds left on the clock. So instead of punting it out of their end zone and giving it to the Packers at around the 50-yard line, and going while up seven, remember, this is very important, they're up seven. They go back into the end zone and their punter rolls out and drains maybe five seconds of clock off the board. Doesn't seem like a lot. But and then they take the two point loss, which is why the game ended twenty seven to twenty two. But then instead of punting out of his own end zone following the safety, he punts back from his twenty yard line, which pins the Packers up back a lot deeper than what they would have been punting out of his own end zone. And then on top of that, they still need a touchdown because they're still down five points, meaning they still need to march all the way down on the field. So they found out a way to give the Packers less time, taking that five seconds off the clock, plus the time on the punt return from the um, safety punt. Um, That time off the clock, give the Packers less time to execute their offense, a longer field to do it on, when they still need the same result. And they win the game because they take a safety. In, or it, at least not because of, but it helps them win the game and clinch the game at the end. Thing is, most people don't notice that. It's going to take a very high situational football IQ to notice that. Want to know who does? Giants head coach Brian Dable, who I think has a grip on this program and has it going in the right direction. You know, 4-1 and one now on the season with wins against the Titans, Panthers, Bears, and Packers. There's some pretty good teams in there. The Titans last year went, uh, were the number one team in the AFC. And they, this year, you know, they've been struggling, kind of feeling out their way. The AFC South has been a bit of a mess. The Jacksonville Jaguars are good, question mark. Um, Joe rocking the Duval hoodie over in the corner. But that being said, it's just, um, you know, very smart football. I think, like you said, um, Brian Dayball really has this thing going for um, the Giants. And um, I just want you guys um, – so one, are the Giants actually good, 
or was it a London fluke? Did the jet lag get the best of the Packers and a worse team was able to come out with the win because they were better prepared with the travel? Is it, um, we'll start with you, Noah. Which way do you lean on that? Well, I think it has something to do with them being in London because an interesting thing that I read, Aaron Rodgers, after 502 touchdown passes, finally got a touchdown to a first-round receiver, Mercedes Lewis. <laughs> that was that was his first touchdown to a first to a first round player, which is we like. And I think they said on the broadcast that was Lewis's first touchdown catch since either nineteen or twenty nineteen or uh, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, weird things are happening in London. I mean, the Packers they have not looked that great this season. They their defense is kind of been falling off. I mean, they did lose Zadarius Smith, and Jair Alexander has been kind of injured. So, I mean, I guess the Giants just capitalized on that and played like a really good football team. So, if there's any time to do it, it's when the other team is struggling. Yeah, well, moving on to our next game here, we, um, in that later window of the afternoon, we had some uh, NFC West against NFC East action with the uh, Cowboys and the Rams taken on each other in LA obviously Dallas comes out of that game with a 22 to 10 win with a very impressive defensive performance the defensive line really swarmed um Matthew Stafford all day made um really the Rams offense look uh juvenile almost to a point and um you know obviously big special teams play early in the game as well with a blocked punt which uh, resulted in another early score which got them their early lead but just a great performance by um, the Cowboys. Um, what do we make of this Cowboys team? Is this defense good enough to uh, carry this team deeper into the season than we expected this year? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, the Cowboys, uh, first of all, the, fir- the question you have to ask is, who do you start when Dak Prescott is back? Cooper Rush is 5-0 and as a starter, and the, uh, it's, he, he raises a valid question on who to play uh, once Dak is ready to come back from, I think it was a thumb injury. And then the defense is playing great, uh, holding them to only 10 points, uh, making their O-line look silly against the Cowboys. I, I saw the, the Rams, I, I saw a tweet saying the Rams should uh, start calling Andrew Whitworth to come back from retirement after that game. Uh, I don't know, the Cowboys are looking great with Cooper Rush uh, leading the charge. No, I've been uh, especially impressed with Cooper Rush's performance. I, I, I don't think he's, he hasn't lost a game, has he? No. Dak Prescott goes out with an injury all of a sudden, you know, Dallas, which, um, I mean, I think it was noted this offseason that uh, Dallas, this was probably the quietest their fan base has been in any year I've been around Cowboys fans in terms of it's our year talk. And now here they are, and they're maybe actually having their best season yet. And it's largely, you know, credit to that offensive line and that running game. What they're doing, the way they're road grading, the two-back system that they have going is really helpful for this offense, and I think a little bit more credit needs to be given there in terms of Cooper Rush's ease of transition and whatnot. You know, when you have a bell cow like Ezekiel Elliott who can rack up carries, hits, while still taking chunks out of the defense, and then you have Tony Pollard who's just speed open field will make – will make defenses look silly at least once or twice a game when he gets the opportunity. Having a two-system back where not one gets too tired on either guy and um, just able to wear down defenses, it's really worked for Dallas, and I think they could have a recipe for success long haul here down the course of the season. 
Well, I have never been a very large supporter of the Cowboys or advocator for the Cowboys, but I, d I, do, I do like what they're doing with their running game. I, I genuinely like how they're using their two backs to be able to attack the defense. Um, but, yeah, no, the Cowboys defense is definitely something special. However, I don't think that Cooper Rush is the starter when Dak comes back. I know he's 5-0 and as a starter, but record doesn't say everything. You have to look at the defense and look at the teams they played. I mean, the Rams are falling off, and they played the Giants last week. And the Commanders, he's played a couple times, and I know they haven't been that great. So Dak Prescott is definitely much better of a quarterback when he's healthy, especially with the receivers that the Cowboys have. So I think, I think that when Dak gets back, if they can keep that momentum, that NFC East is going to be really competitive come, come the end of the season. No, I definitely agree. I think Dak coming back is going to be huge for the progression and development of this offense just in terms of what more it can do. You know, um, just in the passing game this last week, Cooper Rush only had 100 yards through the air. You know, Dak Prescott's a guy when healthy, feeling his receivers, feeling his offense, can put up 300, 400 yards in a game. So, you know, just very impressive. But um, just with that, with the Rams now, two and three. Um, I'd like to also mention, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but uh, also Super Bowl team from last year, Bengals, also sitting at 2-3 and three right now. So both the Super Bowl teams from last year losing records through five games, but the Rams, 2-3. and three. They got wins against the Falcons, led by Marcus Mariota, and against the Cardinals, who have maybe been trying to figure it out, had a close game against the Eagles, which we'll get into next. But then losses against the Bills, 49ers, and Cowboys, who, like we said, Cowboys are looking good. 49ers are a solid team, and... The Bills, um, the Bills are the Bills this year. Um, what way are we leaning? Or is it time to panic if you're a Rams fan, or are you just feeling yourself out with the changed offensive line and uh, loss of weapons, really, with no Robert Woods and no Odell Beckham? Is it time to panic? Does changes need to be made, or is it just keep going? We'll figure it out as we get closer to postseason. I I would say it's not time to entirely panic quite yet, but the only wins they have are against a young, inexperienced Falcons team with not a really good quarterback. And that was a close victory for them. The Falcons almost did come back from 28-3, to which I find amusing. And their other victory was against the Cardinals, who have also been kind of falling off a cliff, quite literally, and their head coach. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't think it's time to hit the panic button quite yet. But you have lost to very good teams. And I think... You need a signature win against a big team if you want to be a playoff contender. So that's my input on that. So you think they're going to have to get something going a little bit more if they're going to want to put something? They, they need to take at least one of the next three games, I'd say. I don't necessarily know who's on their schedule. I'll pull that up real quick, but up. Joe, what are your thoughts? I have to agree with Noah. I don't think it's too, I think it's too early to start panicking. They need to just take a breath slow down and start playing some good meaning, meaningful football as we get into the second quarter of the season. Um, they need to start throwing to their other weapons too. They got they signed Allen Robinson this offseason. They they obviously still have Cooper Rush or not Cooper Rush, Cooper Cup. Uh, they they have good weapons. They just gotta start opening up the field more, throwing it throwing it more. They're running back they're they're not the greatest running backs in the in the league, but uh, they can start opening up their offense, calming down a bit. Uh, Matt Stafford starts playing better. Their O-line plays better. Their defense steps up like they should with 
Aaron Donald, uh, Jalen Ramsey, Bobby Wagner. They have a good defense. They just need to start playing like it. Yeah, and um, like we were talking about, coming up for the Rams, uh, honestly a good opportunity to kind of get right. Um, up next this upcoming week, they have uh, the Carolina Panthers, who today fired head coach Matt Rule after another poor start to a season in, I believe, what was his third full season with the team, or would have been his third full season of the team. On another note with that, getting paid $800,000 per month for not coaching a football team. Great job by Matt Rule negotiating that contract with Carolina. And great job to Tep- uh, Robert Tepper of the Carolina Panthers for uh, succeeding that much money to a failed head coach. Um, but that being said, so, you know, obviously a chance there for the Rams to get back going against a struggling Panthers team. The following week after that, they have a bye week, so a chance to maybe rest up, get healthy, um give Stafford a bit of a break, and then uh, they have the 49ers again, so a chance to prove themselves again against a team um, that, again, they uh, struggled against earlier in the year, losing 24-9. to So it's really um, it's a good chance for the Rams to turn around their season right now, and I know Odell Beckham Jr. hasn't been healthy yet. He's not all the way back. He's been meandering his options, but right now going into Panthers week and then a bye week, not much of a better opportunity to reintegrate someone into the building to bring a little bit of rejuvenation to the offense, but we'll see how that goes because obviously Odell Beckham is keeping his options open as well for when he returns from injury. Yeah. Let's take a second to move on from the Rams and to another NFC East and West matchup. Um, the the undefeated Eagles beat the Cardinals in, a, in what was the relatively close game for the Eagles this season. Their offense has been on fire behind Jalen Hurts, obviously. He had two rush touchdowns this game. Um, but 20-17, to 17, that's Philly's closest game this year, and I keeps them undefeated. But Philly's going to have to keep it up, obviously, if they want to be undefeated because that's what you have to do when you're an undefeated team. Um, yeah, I mean, the Cardinals are still struggling. Cliff Kingsbury needs to figure out how to fix that or he's probably next after Mr. Rule uh yeah and I think they were uh didn't they come in in that same uh, coaching carousel hire or was Rule a couple years after I think they were close if not around each other if not one year apart I, I think. think it was the same year same year I yeah so. so I mean Cliff Kingsbury you know he I mean Talk about a star-studded cast the Cardinals have between Kyler Murray. You got James Conner in there who's found um, a bit of a career resurgence productivity since leaving the Steelers. And um, then, you know, wide receiver targets. You have uh, DeAndre Hopkins who, hey, coming back in a couple weeks. He's almost back. We'll have him back week seven. So that'll be (laughs) – Been riding my bench all year. Oh, having him him tucked away right now is huge for fantasy owners. But just him coming back, um, Hollywood Brown getting a big game this last week, got a touchdown as well, and um, Rondale Moore stepping up into that offense. There's a good mix of targets there. They have too much going for them. I, I, I don't even need to mention the defensive side of the ball. Come on, Isaiah Simmons, Byron Murphy Jr. Um, J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt. Came up with a big um, hit on the passer this past weekend that forced an incompletion in a big third down situation on Jalen Hurts. But obviously the Cardinals unable to come out of that game, you know, just um, last second field goal and uh, missed that last second field goal, I should say, from 43. And it's just, you know, Cardinals, I think they might have a better chance at um, turning this around. I think that 
if there are any teams right now that haven't looked themselves or and have a chance at turning it around and being real playoff threats later on, I think the Cardinals could potentially be that. You know, right now their losses and um, – you know, it doesn't seem too flattering at first, but their losses are against the Chiefs, Rams, and Eagles. The Rams may or may not be a bad football team. I, I'd lean towards the not and sort of figuring it out. The Chiefs are obviously one of the best teams in the NFL. And then, you know, um, we know how um, the Eagles have been undefeated this season. So it's just they've faced a lot of talent early. There hasn't been a lot of hope, but also I think that leaves a lot of room for uh, improvement going forward. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to agree. Uh, the Cardinals just need to start faster. Uh, they haven't scored in the first, I think it was the first quarter, all five weeks of this season, which isn't great for this team. They need to start faster to be the playoff team they can be with their, their offensive their offensive powerhouse. Or I wouldn't say powerhouse, uh, just their offense. Uh, but once D-Hop comes back, that's going to help them a lot. Uh, Hollywood Brown looks amazing so far, playing with his best friend, Kyler Murray. Uh, James Conner, like you said, has also rejuvenated his career. But also the Eagles, they're 5-0. They're like, it, it was almost a given. I mean, their schedule so far hasn't been the strongest. They, did, they, play, the Eagle, or they play the Lions, who have s- some very high-scoring games, they, even though they just got shut out by, the, by Bailey Zappi and the, the Patriots. But they played the Vikings, who... Are, are looking like a great team. The Commanders, who have fallen off the earth after winning uh, one game. Uh, they beat the Jaguars last week after a five-turnover performance from Trevor Lawrence and then just barely squeezed by the Cardinals this week. Uh, it's, it's the Eagles, but the Cardinals just need to start faster. Yeah, um, but thinking of that, starting faster, I think I kind of just landed on something here that I've noticed with their play I feel like um Kyler Murray has been playing very conservative staying in the pocket maybe running around behind the line of scrimmage but not subjecting himself to later down the field hits necessarily earlier in games and it hasn't been until later in games when he really starts getting his legs going I just Kyler's legs haven't been enough of a focus on this Cardinals offense and I think a lot of Kyler's success when he gets going he's the most impressive running quarterback in the NFL bar Lamar Jackson I mean I'd even argue that some of Kyler Murray's highlights are more impressive than Jackson's when he gets going just because of his size, stature, and how fast it just physically looks like he's moving at his size. But that being said, I think you're entirely right that they need to start quicker, and I think the easy fix for that is put some trust in Kyler. He's not going to go out there and just get himself hurt. He's going to put himself in good situations to stay healthy and be there for this team. And I know Cliff Kingsbury needs Kyler there because – Cliff is coaching for his job right now, so he needs a starting quarterback out there and healthy, so I get instructing him to stay in the pocket to keep him healthy, but that's not what makes Kyler special. What makes Kyler special is what he can do on the run. That's what extra he offers to the offense. So I think um, it would be a – how do I want to put this? I think it's going to be a tough decision because obviously it puts Cliff in a tough position with his job risking his quarterback's health. But for the Cardinals to really get moving and be that threat team that they could be this year, I think that they need to um I I think they need to let let Murray loose. Let Murray cook. <laughs> totally agree with you on that one. Well We'll wrap it up for this segment on 
what well, we'd like to thank Joe for coming on today. It's been uh, great as always. Love talking football with you. But um, we'll be back on the other side with our uh, this week's uh, real life example. Well, I'm excited for that. Welcome back to the Double Double on KLJX LP Flagstaff. I'm Evan McNilia along with Noah Butler. We've had guests Colby and Joe on with us today. We'd like to thank them for their support in the show for the first hour. We're getting down to our last half hour here and uh, actually pushing our time a bit. Uh, last 18 minutes of this show. So we'll dive right into uh, this week's real life example, which... Um, for me, as a hometown Padres fan and watching this these playoffs this season, it, it, you can't help but get a little bit sentimental over it. You can't help but fall in love with the storylines, the dynamics, the uh, just um, kind of the narrative of it all. But that being said, as we talked about a little bit earlier in the show, Trent Grisham has been on a tear this playoffs. For the first time in seemingly his Padres career, he is actually producing. Um, in each game, he did have two home runs in the series and has a 500 batting average through the series. So really showing up. He hasn't really been a person to do that. You know, Trent Grisham's kind of like um, that guy at work who um, doesn't... You, you know he's lazy. He doesn't want to do work. He doesn't really contribute much he doesn't get much done he um just skates by does just good enough to um stay with the company stay with him but want to know when he really does show out so that he can make sure that he stays around and isn't gotten rid of he shows up when the bosses are paying attention and when it matters most and that's the only time he decides to show up or when everyone's eyes are on him. He can't perform if it's in front of a small group. He can't do his work individually alone. He needs all the attention in the world and to uh, be able to, um, I guess, uh, he only does the hard work when it's noticed. He only does the hard work when it matters most, which I guess kind of works out because it like you said it saves him his job I guess but does anyone really like that guy in the office that slacks off doesn't do much throughout most of the year but then when quarterlies come around is putting in that extra mile to get that extra bonus I don't think so and I think that's what Trent Grisham has really been for the Padres lineup I mean it's been great the last couple games having him around but where is this performance consistently through a 162 game regular season Where's the production? Non-existent. I mean, like I said right now, he has a uh, 500 batting average in the playoffs. But before that, this season, less than a 200 batting average. Just down in the dumps. Doesn't perform when it's expected of him, but when he needs to, when he feels the pressure is on, he somehow has all this extra effort to put in. But, um, yeah, so what do you think of Grisham in this situation? I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I haven't obviously watched as much Padres baseball because I'm not I'm not a No. Uh, yeah. But baseball's long. There's from, only so many yeah, no, games you from, can there's watch. There's only so many games. But from what you've from what you gave as your example, I think you're absolutely right. I mean he is stepping up now at the at the biggest stage in, in baseball really. It's not the quite the World Series yet, but the pl- the postseason is a is a pretty big pretty big stage. Um I feel like I can compare that to something as well. Also, San Diego, someone who consistently did hard work, but then messed up one time and got completely everything ruined from him. 
Ron Burgundy, the Anchorman. I, I can kind of compare that to Tatis because he was really good, and he's been really good this past couple years. And then the, P, the PED thing, which really derailed this whole thing. And if you've seen the Anchorman, Ron Burgundy got pranked, and his, his script made him say something that he wasn't supposed to say, and he got fired. So The FCC would not let him be. The FCC did not let him be. So, yeah, I guess kind of doing a real-life example to it's really a real-life example. <laughs> well, let me hit you with my second here and one-up you on the comedy movie okay. example. Hit me with it. So, if, um, I don't, if you were watching Game 3 of the, uh, the uh, wild-card series with the Padres and the Mets, you, uh, you likely saw Joe Musgrove um, get uh, searched by the umpires. And uh, what this reminded me of a little bit here is... Uh, Ferris Bueller's day off. Ferris Bueller in the beginning just, you know, he has his game plan laid out. He knows what he's doing. He's executing to a T. He calls the principal, calls out six, sounds rough, gets the double recording call in from his parents, goes to pick up his girlfriend. He executing to a T. And you know what? That principal, that principal just could not let him be. That principal... Had to get on his case. Buck had Showalter. to. I mean, we, we'll get there. But yes, you see where I'm going yeah, with this. That going. principal had to show up to his house, look inside while his sister was home, and got went home from school that day. Like, just total cross of boundaries. And what did we see with Buck Showalter and the New York Mets? And uh, how about their stadium? Um, we'll talk about that in a second, but Buck Showalter obviously, um, requests the, uh, search on Joe Musgrove for, um, illegal substance, which I don't know if, uh, if you're not informed on the MLB in the past year, it's become a, uh, bigger issue with pitchers using a sticky substance to, um, better grip, um, baseballs in order to throw, um, different pitch types, faster pitches, and just have better control overall of, um, their... Their arsenal, I guess, of pitches. But that being said, MLB has really started cracking down on this. They've, um, I don't know if uh, some some of you might remember um, them checking the inside of players' belts and pants, and um, there's been some situations between players and ups because of these checks. But um, Musgrove's um, ears looking a little red. Um, Center fielder Andrew, former center fielder Andrew McCutcheon, tweeted out that um, possibly red hot on his ears to just kind of get keep them tingly, keep them a little bit focused. Some pitchers use it, but it's not like a sticky substance to help pitches or whatever. And um, the refs sure did give Musgrove a full ear rub down. Um, just a situation. And then Buck Walter just standing in the sideline like, hmm, you did. he was standing in the dugout looking over because that check took quite a minute as a Padres fan made me a little bit nervous. And um, But they end up... Uh, you know, not finding anything, and then Joe kind of giving him the smirk at the end, you know, Ferris Bueller getting away with it, and as we know, if you've seen that movie, um, kind of ended up like a stooge there for um, the principal at the end of it, all uh, torn up by the dog and whatnot, but, you know, I uh, just couldn't help but think of that watching that game this weekend and uh, seeing the Buck Show Walter and uh, whole Joe Musgrove uh, stare down situation, whatever you want to call it. But that will wrap up our real-life example. Moving on to our final segment of the night, let's introduce this a bit. 
With this, it's called Boom or Bust. We're going to list off some teams, maybe some players, maybe some storylines that are happening around the sporting world. And me and Noah are going to discuss, decide, and determine whether we think it's going to boom or bust. If you watch the stonk market, you know, you track the rise and fall of certain um, stocks and whatnot. We're doing the same thing with teams, players, and just uh, ideas within the sporting world. So, Noah, why don't you get us started off with our first boom or bust? Let's get us, let's get us started out strong here. This is a player who's primed to have a career resurgence after a lot of injury, a lot of just not having a great time, really. Um, John Wall. Now, John Wall was a wizard for the longest time until injuries and his contract really de derailed that kind of the dynamic that they had so they ended up dealing him to the Rockets where he was still covering from injury I mean he had he had modest seasons when he was in Houston but this year with the Clippers he's looking to make his resurgence on a team that could be a contending team in the West um they play he he was playing in preseason today and I saw a clip of him doing an old-fashioned John Wall 360 layup and I was listening to a podcast also today um, with him and Matt Barnes and they were discussing one of John Wall's 360 layups and I mean I I really hope to see that from John Wall I've always I've always liked him as a player and I don't know I've been rooting for him these past couple years He's been an electric player since entering the league. Can't argue with that there. Um, and seeing him on a new team, a contending team, a playoff team, especially um, one like the Clippers, who's going to be getting a uh, healthy Kawhi Leonard back, a San Diego State legend, shout out. But um, got to really um, give it here to John Wall, and I got to say boom. I say, I'm booming on. I'm booming on this one, too. Just, I mean, I'm excited to see what John Wall has. Um, I think he has a lot of gas left in the tank. It's those 360-type layups and electric plays that made him a, um, I'd say even a, uh, I think, household favorite, especially among our generation, the younger generation of NBA fans, just the electric highlights he was able to put up early in his career with the Wizards just really put him apart from many other point guards in the league. Not even um, guys like Westbrook in their prime were pulling off the athleticism moves that Walls had so if he's back healthy and going full go, I'm a, I'm definitely excited to uh, see him going again. Let's go to your next topic, Evan. What do you have? All right, my first uh, boomer bust of the segment is going to be the Carolina Panthers. We just talked about them. We did. Eight hundred thousand dollars to a head coach that isn't going to be coaching for them for the next four years. They fire Matt Rule, the former Baylor head coach who they were hiring to maybe turn around the Panthers program following the Cam Newton era and the Ron Rivera era, that is, as well. And it just hasn't worked out. Matt Rule hasn't found a way to put together a winning season. And, you know, he got the benefit of the doubt with an injured Christian McCaffrey, the centerpiece of that offense through the first three years. But this year, Christian back healthy and honestly still producing at a high level. And they still can't find a way to win games. So goodbye to the college coach. Um, I mean... I'd say um, here for the Panthers, I have to go bust. Bust. Or they're booming with the move of getting rid of Matt Rule. But long term, it's going to be a long bust for the Panthers. There's not a lot of hope on the horizon future. So I think that 
they could have made the right move for their franchise while still finding a way to make their future and fans miserable. I totally agree with you on that one. I'm going to say the Panthers are a bust as well. They're two mid-quarterbacks that they have, Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold. I would say they're mid because they're not that great and they're not... Okay, well, Baker Mayfield this season has been pretty awful. But they... But Matt Rule was their head coach. But Matt Rule is their head coach. And so is Baker going to get excuses now? I don't think Baker's going to get excuses purely because of the, the rapport he's developed over the past couple of years of him just not being that great. He had a lot of weapons in Cleveland, and what did he do with that? Nothing. One playoff win. Coincidentally. Against who? Against the Steelers, yeah. But it, Big, ben is, Big Ben was old. Yeah. That's my excuse for that game. No, but... Like you said, for the Panthers, just they might yeah. even be losing Christian McCaffrey now. They might, yeah. There were rumors of him going to Buffalo. Buffalo was calling about him, which would be an insane trade, I think. That that, but that's that's a story for another time, I, I think. Definitely, but I just you know any situation that causes you to potentially lose a star player like yep. that is a bust for me. Yep. So what you got for um our uh, third one here, Noah? Let's let's keep it with the football theme. Um. Let's say the New York Giants. We were talking about them earlier and how they upset the Packers. But like I was saying earlier about how the Packers really, Saquon's having that resurgent season and everything behind this success of the, the Giants, I think they really could put something together. Their only loss is to the Cowboys, however, which is the only thorn I see in their side because that is a very good team in the division. And I think having that division conflict and having the potential to not win the division because you lost to an opponent in there I think that does play in but I think the Giants if they can if Dable and um, Nightingale the defensive coordinator if they can keep doing what they're doing with what they have they don't have many receivers left I mean Darius Slayton is really the only household air quotes name um, that they have left on on the receiving court but yeah, so if the Giants can get their receivers back, if Kadarius Toney's not injured, he is the best receiver on the Giants, I think. Danny Dimes, Daniel Jones, I think he can, I think this is the year he actually makes his development, I think. Um, and I sure hope that he does because he's been getting a lot of criticism lately. I'm going to go with the Giants are a boom. Not nearly as big of a boom as John Wall, but I think they're a boom. And I, I think this is going to be our first disagreement here. I, I, I'm not on the Giants bandwagon. I think that they've had a decent start to the season, but it have gotten lucky in a lot of games. And I think long term, especially as, um, like you said, they're already dealing with injuries to this um, wide receiver core. They um, long season had a lot of games against the Eagles and Cowboys who are going to be tough. And um, honestly, uh, the commanders will probably surprise them for one game because they stay competitive within the division, at least usually. So I just, I don't like the situation going forward for the Giants. I think they've had a good start to the run. I think the um, I think the uh, I'm blanking on Brian Dable <laughs> era. I was going to say Joe Judge, but I knew that was wrong. Um, Brian say. Dable era off to a hot start. So uh, I think that they have hope for the future, but for the rest of this season, I'm going bust. I don't think this team even makes the playoffs. I no. think that um, 
I think the Cowboys and the Eagles are too strong in the division. They're going to take two spots. And then there's too much talent elsewhere in the NFC between the North with the Vikings and Packers and the West with um, how loaded the West is. You can mention any of the four teams in the NFC West. But um, that brings us to our last boomer bust here. We're going to go with Cooper Rush. I know we touched on it a little bit earlier with the Cowboys. But that being said... um, Rush, 5-0, and has handled the starting job well. And you can determine whatever boomer bust means to Cooper Rush to you, whether it's with the Cowboys or not in this situation. But just do you think this Cooper Rush run is just a product of the Cowboys having a good team and he's just a solid backup and that's all he's ever going to be? Or do you think Cooper Cup now has a future because of, um, because of his performance with the Cowboys? Is he booming or busting from here? I'm going to say, I'm going to say boom here. But like you said, in terms of the Cowboys, I don't think this is necessarily a boom on the Cowboys. Because as I was saying earlier, when Stack Prescott is healthy, he is the much better quarterback. He can put up 400 yards in a game, especially with the receivers that he has: Gallup, Lamb. Hopefully, they get Tolbert back soon. He's a very good wide receiver. But I think this is Rush's dress rehearsal for a a team that needs either an A-tier backup or a team maybe like the Panthers who need a decent starting quarterback not named Baker Mayfield or Sam Darnold because I know they don't want to start their rookie. So I'm going to say boom for Cooper Rush here, but not on the Cowboys. Um, I'll rock with you on that. I, yeah. I, I like that. I'll, I'll go boom with Cooper Rush. He's going to, I think, have a um, solid um, – finish to his Cowboys stint here and then I think that he can get signed somewhere else and can impress some I think there's a lot of young quarterbacks around the league and um it'll um definitely be a testament to his further career I think he could be a very much Ryan Fitzpatrick bounce around and be a stopgap guy for a lot of teams throughout his career but we'll see how that goes that has been tonight's episode of the double double on KLJX LP Flagstaff For Noah Butler, I'm Evan McNilia. We'd like to thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with more sports talk. Thanks for listening to KJAC Radio.